Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. So let's bring in now uh, the, the, the panel uh, for the rest of the event, uh, which is going to be a sizable panel. Um, I'll confess that I am also sitting on it, um, but moderating uh, will be the, uh, the dynamic Tim Carney. Um, Tim is a resident fellow uh, here at AEI. He's also a columnist at the Washington Examiner. He's the author of multiple books, um, the most recent of which is Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. That officially won the Scott Winship uh, Social Science Book of the Year uh, when it came out. Um, I would encourage everybody to, uh, to read that. Um, Tim writes extensively on economic competition, cronyism, civil society, localism, and religion. Um, so Tim, thanks for agreeing to, uh, to moderate this crew. And I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for handing me the gavel. Thank everybody for joining us today, which is effectively what would happen if we let you come and sit down at the lunch table back when AEI used to have um, lunch. And Robert, when he, uh, when our boss leaves to go off do the important phone calls, that's when we really get down to the, the nitty gritty and start going after each other's throats. So uh, no, uh, Scott and I came up with the idea for this panel precisely because we saw the diversity of uh, opinions and experience that we have here at AEI. Robert's work in New York is one of them, but this panel highlights a lot of the, uh, the rest of it. Um, if you go to the AI events page that you follow to get here, you'll see the full bios of our speakers, but I'll just give you a quick introduction. Angela Rashidi is the Rose Scholar in Poverty Studies here at AEI. We've also got Lyman Stone. He's an adjunct fellow at AEI and a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, was mentioned earlier. That's uh, one of Brad Wilcox's home. Matt Whitinger joining us is the Rowe Fellow in Poverty Studies at AEI. Scott is our Director of Poverty Studies, which is he replaced Robert Doerr. So we have to be nice to him because we assume Scott's gonna be our, our next boss. But a little bit on the, on the background again. Angela Rashidi for eight years was the Deputy Commissioner of New York City's Department of Social Services. So she knows this stuff. Matt was a top staffer on House, uh, House Ways and Means Committee, on the Subcommittee on Human Resources. So the, the welfare programs, uh, the changes in the, in the 90s, et cetera, he was there on the ground floor. Um, Lyman's background is not necessarily what you would expect. Uh, a USDA economist forecasting the cotton market conditions, but all of us got to know him through, on Twitter as the go-to guy on all sorts of economic and social research, especially uh, fertility, falling birth rates in the United States. Scott Winship's background, I'll sum it up. He used to be a liberal um, and now he's here. So questions, we might have time to get some of your questions. What you're gonna do is email them to Kawit Promrat, whose email is on that AI events page, K-A-W-I-T dot P-R-O-M rat at aei.org. Again, go back to the events page. You'll see it. Email uh, the questions and I'll, I'll try to uh, work them in. Uh, there's lots of policies that, that are kind of on the table, but just to quickly remind people, Mitt Romney's um, uh, proposed policy is $350 a month for uh, parents of young kids, $250 a month for six to 17 year olds. In full disclosure, I have six kids. I think only my first five would count under Mitt Romney, a father of five. We don't need to get into that. 
Um, but it would also, this would not be on top of the existing aid programs. He would abolish the child tax credit. Um, the, uh, the earned income tax credit would get changed, uh, temporary assistance for needy families and the state and local tax deduction would all go out the door. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go by with sort of quick opening comments, uh, starting with Angela about this, and then I'm gonna work into discussion. So Angela, uh, start us off. Great, thanks Tim, um, and thanks everybody for being here today. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. Um, so it's a little bit hard to follow uh, Robert and Brad, but especially uh, Robert, um, I think he uh, made uh, many of the same points I would make and probably did it much better than I would. Um, but I did want to make a couple points before we kind of get into the discussion, just to kind of let people know a little bit where I'm coming from. So I think, I mean, we can all agree that the goals behind a child allowance are all worthwhile, um, kind of the main ones, reducing poverty, uh, supporting families kind of generally, um, wanting people to have more babies, you know, all, all good things. Um, but I think the supporters of a child allowance have, have really exaggerated the ability of the specific child allowance policies that Tim just just went through really exaggerated the ability of those policies to actually achieve some of these goals. Um, and I mean, you know, due respect to Brad, uh, who just presented some very concerning data, but I don't think that uh, we can really expect kind of three to four thousand extra dollars a year um, is really going to uh, change the, the trends that he showed us um, in any true meaningful way. Um, so I, I'm mostly concerned about low-income families, kind of coming from a similar perspective as Robert spoke about. Um, I have been, uh, or I've spent much of my career working for the government, I'm working in New York City's Department of Social Services. And certainly these types of ideas have been around for a long time. I mean, why not just simply have the government send people more money? Um, you know, what can be wrong with that? Um, but obviously the reason that we don't do that is because as many of us know, there's unintended consequence, consequences that come along with that. Uh, and certainly uh, these policies rarely actually achieve the goals that they're set out to achieve. Um, so in the case of child poverty, I think that you, we obviously, uh, there's a role for the federal government to play. I don't think there's any question about that, but it can be a little bit frustrating, uh, in my opinion, to hear some from some conservatives that think that a child allowance is really the best way to reduce poverty and to have the federal government uh, involved in, in reducing poverty. Um, and also, I think that uh, there's just, um, it's been frustrating to listen to all these tremendous positive benefits that are going to come out of this uh, child allowance when it comes to, to poverty. Because really my, when I look at the evidence, it suggests to me that the effects of this child allowance on poverty are gonna be marginal at best um, and may actually negative impact some families in the, wrong, in, in the long run. Um, and I just generally think that kind of throwing money from the federal government at problems, especially problems this complex is kind of the wrong approach um, for conservative policymaking. Um, so as I mentioned, my main concern is um, how the child allowance affects low-income families. I think it can do some long, or will do some long-term harm for very poor families by reducing employment. Um, it also reduces the touch points like Robert talked about with child support. 
Um, and I mean, like I said, I spent much of my time working in government experiencing viewing these programs up front, and I saw firsthand the harm that some of these incentives can do for families. But really, and I'll sum up kind of quickly here, but the, the larger point I want to make is, um, and I touched on this at the beginning, but even if you know, we can debate these negative outcomes, potential for these negative outcomes, but even if we think that the risk of those uh, consequences is small, the impact of a child allowance on poverty is going to be small. I mean, estimates suggest the Democrats' plan will reduce it by five to six percentage points. We've heard, it, oh, it'll be cut by half, which sounds like a large impact. Um, we've heard similar things from the Romney's, Romney's plan. Um, but that really just means bringing those children just slightly above kind of an income line that represents income poverty. I don't think it's going to do a whole lot to really change the condition of poverty for, for those families. And we should also acknowledge that poverty, when pro properly measured, I mean, we saw similar declines just from like around 2010 to 2019, just due to a strong economy. Um, and we saw extremely large uh, reductions in child poverty after welfare reforms in the late 1990s. So we know how to do this. We know how to reduce poverty and um, it doesn't have to come from such a extreme policy like child allowances. And then just real quickly to kind of Brad's point, I mean, this isn't necessarily my area in terms of uh, uh, marriage and, and fertility, um, but I think that uh, the, if, we, if we think about supporting families and one of the goals of a child allowance is to make it easier, increase stay-at-home parenting, um, or make uh, kind of meet that unmet need that people have for wanting to stay home, I just think we have to take a real close look at the data. I mean, the data already show that those preferences are largely being met. Um, about 60% of mothers of uh, very young children uh, participate in the labor force. Um, about 30% of them say they are already stay-at-home parents. 10% of dads are stay-at-home parents. And that largely matches what we see in terms of preferences for that. So I, again, I think this idea that we're gonna you know, solve this big problem um, is just not really uh, reality. And then finally, same thing with the issue of declining fertility. I think we should make it easier in this country for um, people to have children. Uh, and, uh, but I just don't think a child allowance is really an effective way to do that. And we do have actually quite a bit of research from other countries. Brad had mentioned Canada from an employment perspective, but countries that have tried these kind of child allowances or even baby bonuses um, really found that did it, it did not increase or did not result in more babies. Women maybe had uh, children earlier than they otherwise would have, but it did not really affect um, kind of completed fertility. So just to sum up, uh, you know, I think that these great debates to have about these policies, um, but if we really want to make meaningful change uh, for families and really want to achieve these, these major goals, I think we have to look beyond child allowances. All right. Thank you. Uh, Scott, you got anything to say? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll say a few remarks, um, try to keep it fairly brief. Um, so the, the first order effect, obviously, of something like child allowances would absolutely be to reduce child poverty. You give you give more families more money, poverty goes down. It's kind of, a, uh, it's arithmetic, uh, essentially. Um, what my concern is, and the concern of a lot of folks like me, I think, is that uh, is that child allowances are also likely to increase the number of, uh, of families that have no worker and that are headed by a single parent. And that would uh, take us back uh, to the bad old days um, that welfare reform was designed um, to, to try to improve 
um, runs the risk specifically of increasing over the long run entrenched poverty and over-reliance on government transfers, poverty over longer stretches of childhood, intergenerational poverty, and geographically concentrated poverty. So to my mind, there are, there are kind of three central questions um, uh, about how we should think of, of, of them as an anti-poverty tool. One is what are the risks um, that they'll increase the number of non-working uh, single parent families? Two is how have we actually been doing um, reducing child poverty? If, if, if we're doing a terrible job, then uh, maybe it's time to think about uh, big new proposals. Um, but if we're doing a pretty good job, um, then we might wanna worry a little bit more about some of the downside risk. Uh, and then three, what are the alternatives we have for reducing it further? I'm gonna save number three for, uh, for discussion uh, and for paper that I've got coming out uh, later this week. Um, but so first, what are the risks uh, that child allowances will increase the number of, of no worker uh, single parent families? There's been a lot of uh, reliance on Twitter and elsewhere pointing to this or that review. Um, few of these reviews are focused on estimates specifically for single parents. Um, there's a CBO review that talks about, uh, that, that, that assumes that, that single women, whether parents or not, have the same response to, uh, to benefits as, as married men do. Um, I just think that's, that's totally wrong and contrary to the evidence. I look at a few studies, um, the negative income tax experiments, mostly from the 1970s, found that a 10% increase in benefits, uh, the negative income tax was essentially a guaranteed benefit that was then taxed away as people earned more money. Um, and uh, it found that for a 10% increase in benefits, uh, that led to a 1.8% reduction in hours worked for single mothers. Now that's what's called an income effect. Um, it had nothing to, the, to do with uh, any change in the return to working, um, which is something that a lot of people uh, are, are, are emphasizing when they, when they talk about child allowances versus past welfare programs. Um, but that, that estimate isolates the impact of just additional income, making it easier for people to, to work less. Um, and that estimate uh, actually understated. So the, the experiments were three to five years long. Everybody involved knew that they were going to end at some point. And so it's probably an underestimate of the work disincentives from a permanent program. And there's actually evidence on that for people that were uh, in the experiment for five years. In the fifth year of the experiment, the disemployment effect was over twice as large. Um, the benefit reduced employment among single mothers by 32% in that fifth year. Um, I've taken so that, that these NIT benefits were larger than the child allowance. So the child allowance is not going to reduce employment by a third. Um, but my analyses from the work that had been done on that, uh, on, the, on the NIT experiments in the past, applying it to single parents today and, and the amount of money that they're likely to get, uh, it's not at all un unreasonable to think that employment among single mothers could fall by, say, four percentage points. Uh, which is about a third of the increase in, in employment among single mothers since 1989. Um, there's another study by uh, uh, Fang and Keen um, about welfare reform. Uh, there's been a few of these studies. This one was done uh, after um, many of them. It found that welfare reform by itself, um, not related to the economy uh, or to the expansion of other programs, increased uh, the employment rate of, of single mothers by three points by, by 2002, just a few years later. Now that does include this substitution effect, um, which, which relates to the return to work changing. Um, the return to work was very low uh, for the old AFTC program. And once that program went away, it became higher. And, and that was part of what got 
uh, more single parents to work, that effect wouldn't be as strong uh, for child allowances. And so three points might be too high from that, from that regard. On the other hand, um, that aspect probably overstates the importance of the strength of the economy because employment remained high after 2002 among single mothers, even during downturns. It never went back uh, to, to the days before welfare reform. And then finally, the introduction of food stamps in the 1970s, um, a paper by uh, Hilary Hoynes and Diane Schanzenbach found that that increased employment among single mothers somewhere between four and 12 percentage points. That wasn't statistically significant, meaning uh, that a, a range of estimates, uh, including zero, uh, are consistent with what they found. Um, however, the impact on the hours that they worked, which were very consistent with that result, were statistically significant. Those results, th those also include the substitution effect, so discount them for that. On the other hand, the disemployment effects came despite the fact that the AFDC program was already there and was already discouraging work uh, among single mothers. Finally, um, effects on single parenthood. Uh, there's a lot of evidence on this. It's mixed, ambiguous. Lyman and others have pointed to uh, the fact that the child allowance proposals would reduce the marriage penalties um, associated with, with getting married, um, the reduction in income when, uh, when, when unmarried parents get married. And they've pointed that to argue that child allowances will increase marriage. That actually misses the point of those uh, who have the concerns that I do in the same way that Sam Hammond is missing the point uh, when he argues that child allowances are pro-work. Um, both of those are, are focusing on these substitution effects, the return to work, the return to marriage. Um, the assumption is that safety nets can't disincentivize employment or marriage except by making it more difficult to work or get married. The point for people like me is the concern about income effects, um, that the safety net might make it easier for parents to not work uh, or to be single. Um, and it comes down to what the preferences of, of folks living very complicated lives are. Um, uh, last thing I'll say, how have we been doing on child poverty? Uh, so, the, so the trend um, when you measure income uh, as well as possible, as carefully as possible, um, I have a paper on this from 2016, Poverty among uh, single mother families was about 50% in 1982, about 40% in 1993, about 30% in 1996, and it's about 15% today. Um, there's research from the Congressional Research Service that shows even if you don't take into account all of the sources of income that come from safety net programs that expanded since 1996, um, poverty has gone down among single mother families. So it's not the case that this simply reflect, reflects the fact that we expanded the safety net in other ways. It was em employment, uh, the strength of the economy, combined with the fact that so many more single mothers were working um, uh, at the time uh, that, that, that drove those poverty rates down. I'll end there uh, and uh, save other points for the discussion. Thank you. Lyman, let's hear from you. I think you'll disagree. <laughs> yeah, so one of the fun things about, uh, about all of this um, is that we have essentially the full range of opinion um, within AEI. I'm going to hold down the full-throated defense of child allowances uh, perspective here, but I actually want to start out with kind of a meta point um, about how we talk about this, and that is that not all child allowances are created equal. So I'm not going to argue that, uh, that every child allowance ever conceived is necessarily a good policy because it has the name child allowance. 
uh, how you pay for it matters. There's always going to be an eligibility cri criteria hidden somewhere. The amount matters. So specifically what I'm gonna frame my, my comments around is the Family Security Act. This is Romney's proposal. Um, this is a, a live proposal that although I agree it's unlikely to become law, the theoretical path to becoming law is relatively straightforward. It's 49 Democrats, Mitt Romney and Kamala Harris um, because it can pass through reconciliation. Uh, unlike most of the proposals that Democrats would prefer to see pass. Um, so, so I actually want to do a, a more concrete case here, right? I don't want to, I don't want to get into sort of hypotheticals about what some imaginary child allowance proposal might do. Uh, and then secondly, I think there's another question about um, the, the topic here, should conservatives uh, support a child allowance? And, and um, I think that we can point to different kinds of conservatives, right? Broadly speaking, um, not to do sort of a, um, a friendly fire here, but there are economic and social conservatives, right? In very, very broad brush terms. Um, and the priorities of these groups among conservatives are likely to be different in many areas. Um, so, you know, you might have some conservatives who are very, very interested in um, efficient markets and limited government uh, and these things and other conservatives whose main priorities uh, are uh, the traditional family or um, religious liberty or these things. And often these things are going to play nicely together. And there's a reason why we are all one movement is because these things do generally play nicely together. But there are going to be times where there are fissures. Uh, and I would argue that the child allowance is one of these. That in fact, we face a choice um, on what the priority of policy should be. Uh, should it be work uh, or should it be family stability and ultimately abortion? Um, so as we get into that, we want to think about what, what principles should we be thinking about? What are the principles that conservatives think we should think about uh, when we think about policymaking? I like to think about this as what defines the ideal society for conservatives? If we could think of our ideal world, how is it different from the current, current one? And it's possible labor force participation rates are part of that story. But if all you want is higher labor force participation rates, move to Japan, they're already higher than ours. Move to France, they're higher than ours. Move to Sweden, they're higher than ours. Places that have far more generous, and in Japan's case, less generous, social welfare already have higher labor force participation rates, including Japan even as higher uh, for women uh, than we have. Um, so I actually don't think that this is a very important component of most conservatives' vision of how they want to see the world change to be nearer their ideal. I actually think most of the things that we'd like to see different relate to things that are broadly going to fall under the category of social policy. Um, and ultimately, I think that when we think about um, the policies that we're going to need for the next 20 years, I think Scott's right. Poverty's fallen by a lot. It was uh, in when you adjust for cohabitation and different sources of income and all these things that Scott's work has shown, it's fallen very, very rapidly over the last few decades. And not just over the last few decades, if you look, you actually see that the slope of the decline in child poverty is basically unchanged since like the late 80s when the data begins, that it just persistently declines. So I'm ready to sort of say mission accomplished, okay? So like, what's the next problem? Because we seem to have done a lot of work on child poverty. So why do we not have this world uh, that, that conservatives hoped we would get? And maybe it's because child poverty isn't the only problem in the world. And so I, I think I'm one of the, also one of the only people here who's not housed in a poverty-related institution. It's not my first expertise and concern. 
Um, now, obviously poverty is very important, but as it's been made clear, we've done a lot of work to beat poverty. So my main concern is not poverty. My main concern here is not work. My main concern here is the social priorities that conservatives tend to have. Um, and on that, we gotta think, what is that first social priority? And I would say the first priority is getting first things first. And the first thing is family. All of the rest of society is built on family. The market exists to provide goods and services for families. The government exists to provide goods and services, namely security, protection of liberties, things like this, broad public goods and services to families, right? The family is, a, is the constituent entity of society. Whatever policy we do should be oriented in that way. Then we have to think, okay, conservatives, we tend to like limited government. We have pretty good reasons for thinking government should have limits on it. Debts and deficit are an important measure of that. Helpfully, the Family Security uh, Act is uh, deficit neutral. So it's not gonna be a huge problem there, I think. But there's another kind of, of uh, government intervention we might worry about. And actually, um, I'm always loath to disagree with the big boss, uh, but Robert mentioned one of the benefits being of, uh, of keeping caseworkers is the interpersonal uh, touch, right? This human interaction. And I would say that's a horrible thing. Um, we should seek to eliminate as much of the bureaucracy as possible. Um, our, our goal should not be to maximize the number of bureaucrats that have say over an individual's life. Our goal should be to minimize the number of bureaucrats who have, who have say over an individual's life. That is, it's sometimes the case that by having a program that might spend somewhat more money, like a child allowance, although again, this program is deficit neutral, so it's not dramatically altering um, the net fiscal situation, um, but sometimes you may spend more money and yet ultimately get less government intervention because there's two ways the government can intervene. One is just by being really, really big and the other is by being a social engineer. And whenever you see all these complicated phase-ins and phase-outs and eligibility rules and who gets it and who doesn't, what is it? It's social engineering. It's the government picking who wins. And who wins right now, mathematically, who gets the most benefits is a single mom with three kids who works about 25 hours a week at minimum wage. That's how you maximize uh, kind of your net position with respect to the tax and welfare code. The Family Security Act doesn't radically alter that, although it does change it that that marriage becomes a little bit more advantageous, but it doesn't really change very much. It shifts the total number of hours you, that you would need to work to maximize by like 2%. But the point is um, that while child allowances may risk expanding the total size of government, they also dramatically reduce the, the intensity of intervention of that government. They get rid of a lot of these caseworkers. I think many conservatives uh, who've had, um, who've worked in adoption or foster care or these things, these, these types of uh, um, family court situations uh, don't always have a positive view um, of the caseworkers that are assigned to these things. These, these folks aren't always actually just asking, hey, is there a way we can get the dad involved? Um, so I don't think we should act like the median TANF caseworker uh, is, is our ally in advancing a conservative social vision. Um, and I think generally the bureaucracy is, is not an ally to conservatism. Um, and finally, another thing most conservatives, even social conservatives are gonna care about um, is markets. We think people should generally take care of themselves and that markets are an efficient way to organize society. Um, but a, a problem in markets is externalities. Some, sometimes you do something that impacts someone else. Uh, and sometimes you get to free ride on things other people do. And the most common form of free riding in our society or one of the most uh, consequential uh, relates to fertility. 
right? We have programs like Social Security and, Medi and Medicare that provide people benefits that have nothing to do with their actual contribution to the ability to pay for those benefits. Because what pays for Social Security? Fertility or immigration, of course, um, but the next generation. Uh, so right now we have this disconnect between people who get benefits and people who provide for those benefits. And right now the providers, that is people having the children, often get fewer benefits at the end. Why? Because maybe they work less because they were taking care of kids and maybe they didn't save as much because they were paying for college. So the people paying for everyone else's retirement, they're not the ones benefiting from that retirement. Instead, we say, oh, you earned a lot of income, which paid for other people's retirement. And so you get a, a nice retirement. This, this is a perverse transfer. And it creates a negative externality. It creates a free writing problem, which is why academic research has consistently found that introduction of new pension-related programs and expansion of pension-related programs reduces fertility by a macro-significant amount. Um, increasing degrees of financialization in society is associated with reduced fertility because it creates opportunities, state-backed opportunities, to free ride across generational differences. So, I think, in fact, that a child allowance, such as put forward in the Family Security Act, is a pretty reasonable thing for conservatives to support. Now, we can talk about fertility. I'm sure there will be more discussion on that, on what does the literature really say. But I actually want to agree with something Robert said at the beginning. Um, and that is that, yeah, the Family Security Act or these current proposals aren't likely to pass, but something is likely to eventually pass. This, this, um, uh, this, this horse is on the track. Okay, it's going. Um, the number of countries that are officially explicitly pronatal rises in every survey round that the UN does asking governments for their position. This is happening. It's happening either now or in 10 years or 20 years, but the longer we wait, the less effective it will be and the less say conservatives will get in what it looks like. And this isn't like, oh, single payers eventually happening. Single payers is really hard to do. It's a very complicated policy to implement. There's a lot of stakeholders. The problem is the only actual opposition for a child allowance is like philosophical opposition to giving money to low-income people. There's not like a deeply committed interest group that's, there's, it's not like the healthcare industry that's opposed to single payer or something. This is something that's actually very easy to do. You can do it through reconciliation. There's not a concerted interest group that has a, a strong constellation of interests against this. And it's something that we see more and more countries doing all over the world all the time. It is going to come here. The question is just what it looks like and whether conservatives have a seat at the table in writing the laws. So I think we should pull up a chair, take a seat and write that law. Thank you, Lyman. Matt. Thanks, Tim. Well, uh, it's always uh, kind of difficult to be the last, uh, last car in a long train of people offering their opinions on complicated stuff like this. But, um, this is really complicated. There are a number of proposals. Lyman talked about the Romney plan, um, and those proposals have some merit. They have uh, many demerits that we've talked about. Um, Robert's also right that we tend to talk past each other in this debate. Part of that is because of how complicated this is. So if you think about what's going on here, as far as the child allowance proposals, there's three groups that will benefit by, let's just do the simplest, the, the version that's going through Congress now. People who get the full $2,000 credit today would get more. They would get $3,000 or $3,600, depending on um, the age of their child. 
Then there's a large, that's, that's basically a, a subset. That's about 20% of the total cost of uh, the expansion. The other 80% is involving individuals who work less. Um, some might work full-time at minimum wage, but many will be working part-time. Um, and they get some credit today, and, but they don't get the full credit, but they too would get the full child allowance, the $3,000 or $3,600. And then there's a final group that aren't working at all and or working very, very minimal amounts, less than $2,500 in earnings per year. And they too would get the full $3,000 or $3,600. So, you know, if you look at any of those individual groups and say, well, how would they benefit? How would fertility? How would marriage? How would, you know, various other uh, dynamics be affected? The effects can tend to be very different because you're talking about, you know, really large swaths of society when it, you come to families who are positive income taxpayers to who are working full-time, to families that are working often part-time, to families that are working where parents are working not at all. So like I said, we, we're tending to talk past each other because we're looking at our sort of own individual little piece of this puzzle. Um, and you know, I'm not sure that that uh, adds a whole lot of uh, light to uh, the public discussion. Robert's very right about one thing um, on needing to focus on what's gonna become law. So the House has passed a child allowance bill and the Senate is considering a child allowance bill, that, that bill that will um, likely be voted on in the Senate either this week or next. That's likely to become law, at least on a temporary basis, um, within, you know, let's say, the next couple of weeks. Um, that policy creates a child allowance that is completely unconnected to work. So in my view, conservatives, and Lyman's right, there's all sorts of different stripes of conservatives, but conservatives sort of in general, in my view, conservatives shouldn't support that for basically three big reasons. First reason is that a major share of this proposal is devoted to you know, one third of those groups that I talked about before, paying new or much bigger government benefits to millions of parents who are working not at all or working very little. That, if you're you know, as old as me, uh, revives some of the primary features of the old AFTC program that welfare reform ended in the 1990s. And at, as Bill Clinton back then said, was a program that provided monthly checks to overwhelmingly non-working parents that, as he said, had become a way of life for too many, literally for, for millions. Um, the average lifetime stay of people who were then on AFDC was 13 years. So it's hard to call that anything other than dependence on the government for your basic income needs. Um, but the, the benefits that are being offered now, ironically, in many states would actually be even bigger than AFDC proposed back then. So back then, there were 21 states that, um, that offered benefits, AFDC benefits for a mom with two, two young kids, that would be less than what the child allowance is proposing today for that same family. So some people say, well, this isn't really that big. In reality, it's actually bigger than welfare checks used to be before welfare was reformed uh, and signed into law by a Democrat president. Um, there's another part of this too that people need to be aware of. So part of this is about assisting families with very young kids. And you know, part of the argument there is really complicated and expensive to help them um, go to work. And I think everybody sort of intuitively understands that. So there's a, what the, the congressional bill says is, there's a $3,600 a year credit that would be, or payment that would be made to those families. But then the proposal also says, well, we're gonna actually provide more money, $3,000 compared to the current $2,000 to families with older kids, families with kids who are in school, at which point parents often tend to go to work or go to work even more. So this is saying that compared with current law, we need to increase subsidies, even for parents who are in a position to go to work and for whom childcare costs have really started to dwindle. So 
First, first issue is uh, reviving welfare reform. Second, the reform actually has the effect of converting what is now tax relief, mostly tax relief under the child tax credit into mostly spending. So under this, the and, and that would be spending on people who are not currently paying income taxes uh, by definition. That's the refundable side of this credit, which is kind of confusing, but we can talk about that more later. So ironically, this child tax credit wouldn't be about tax relief in bulk in the future. And the biggest increases in payments would go to those who either don't work at all or are, are currently working only part-time. Neither of those groups pays income taxes today. So that part of the proposal clearly has nothing to do with cutting taxes, even though Democrats often portray it as a tax cut. The third problem is once we start down this road of paying monthly checks from the government to all parents, I, I'm afraid, you know, everybody's heard, read about proposals about UBI and all that. Well, here we are. This is a UBI, the Wall Street Journal called it UBI for kids. It's arguably UBI for parents since they're the ones receiving the checks, but it won't be long before uh, non uh parent adults are saying, hey, where's my check? Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of reminded by, of the famous Chicago journalist, Mike Royko, who said the unofficial motto of the city of Chicago is ubi est mea, which in Latin means, where's mine? It, it really will not be long before other people are looking around saying, hey, this one set of households are receiving checks, where's my check? And then that really, you don't need to think much outside the box to think, well, okay, well, how about if we just solve poverty by just increasing the size of those checks? No less than Kamala Harris actually proposed a bill last year in the context of the pandemic that would have literally done that. She proposed $2,000 a month checks for every adult and as many as three kids in a household um, for the duration of the pandemic and beyond. So, you know, pandemic focused, but you can see where this is going, right? Once, if we ever started a proposal like that, there'd be no shutting it off. And you'd be literally paying families with five people $10,000 a month or the $120,000 a year. We would literally have defined poverty out of existence, even if everybody quit their job and, and nobody was working anymore. So, you know, that, that has tremendous uh, problems with it. But it seems like we're crossing a Rubicon in terms of starting these uh, payments of checks to, um, to families now. Um, and of course, that would cost an ungodly amount of money. I mean, literally the, the size of the federal government would more than double and it would be headed towards tripling, which means taxes would have to go through the roof. None of these plans, none, I mean, that, to be fair, the, the Romney plan, the FISC plan include pay-fors and they include pay-fors by doing things like ending current programs and raising taxes. None of the Democrat plans have any of that built in. It's basically a $110 billion spending increase that will translate into a $1 trillion spending increase over 10 years. So from where I sit, as the child allowances are currently be considered by Congress, and that's really what I think we should focus on, um, they revive AFDC checks to non-working parents, they convert tax relief programs into large new spending programs, and they pay away, pave away for a UBI. I'm really hard pressed to see um, why any of that is a goal that a conservative policymaker should support or any in the past really have tended to support. Thank you, Matt. Um, the points of disagreement here, I think, are, are many. Uh, we're obviously not going to get to them in the, in the final 10 minutes. There's a couple I want to focus on the first, and all of you just try to be as concise as possible here. But the hinge, the key thing seems to be the comparison that uh, especially you, Matt, um, are making between the aids to, aid to family with dependent children and uh, this proposal 
and uh, that Scott provided sort of the backup for it by saying that the, the difference wasn't, the, the, the problem wasn't that it was replacing uh, work and creating a, um, the, uh, the, it wasn't that it was replacing work and creating a disincentive, which it was, but that it was providing income and that the income effect would drive people out of work. So I have a sort of two-part question about this and I'm, because Lyman's outnumbered, I'm gonna let him answer first. Do we really think this, is this really restoring AFDC and the, and the problems of it? If so, is that worth it? But then the second part of this is, well, I'll get to the second part later. It has to do with um, who would be staying home. So anyway, uh, Lyman, what do you think of that comparison between this and AFDC? Uh, that's a great question. So I think we can meaningfully break this into income and substitution effects, as Scott helpfully did. And on the substitution side, these are worlds apart, right? There's not that low phase out. Um, Romney's plan actually removes some marriage penalties in the current code related to um, the head of household filing status and the earned income tax credit and things like that. So on the substitution side, um, I really think there's a very strong conservative case here that Romney's plan uh, improves the net incentive for marriage. Um, it does not create any new phase outs or welfare cliffs, and it leaves everybody that currently has a negative marginal tax rate still has one. Now it's not as negative, um, but we're not talking, we, it doesn't create anybody who, um, who now has a, a positive tax bill who previously had a negative one. Um, and I actually actually did do the math on that on a large simula simulated universe of taxpayers. So that's true, I promise. <laughs> um, uh, um, so on the substitution side, there's a big difference, but the income effect side is interesting, right? So if you give people a lump sum, is it gonna cause this like threshold effect right at zero? Um, and the answer is of course, yes. Like there will be some people who have some kind of income effect discouragement. Now, who they are, I guess you're gonna follow a question about that, so I, I won't get into that yet. Um, but we can actually get a quantitative assessment of this, right? So um, I haven't published this yet, but uh, Scott's seen it. Um, but we've got a lot of data on child allowances across dozens of countries across decades. Um, and we can compare that to things like the teen pregnancy rate and their existing time trends and their economic cycles and all this. And we can also compare that to the extent of marriage penalties in their tax and welfare code. So we can disentangle the substitution effect, that is marriage penalties essentially, um, from the income effect, which is the direct transfer. And it turns out that when you give more direct transfers, if you have if you have more uh, if you have more penalty for marriage, you get more single childbearing. Obviously, penalized marriage, you get more single childbearing. Obvious. Um, but as we get more transfers, as countries increase their the the degree of their direct family spending, particularly on cash benefits, uh, we see lower lower fertility out of wedlock. Um, that in fact, the in, to the extent that that income effect exists, um, it appears to run that as people have more income, they avoid having um, union babies. And what are union babies? They're babies you have to cement a union. Right there where you're in a perhaps marginal relationship, but you want to make sure it's concrete. And so you have a baby to sort of tie that person in. Well, it turns out that you don't need to have a baby for child support if you have a child allowance, um, so to speak. So uh, you, you don't get that, um, you don't get as much non-marital fertility, point blank. But you do see increases in total fertility. 
So there's, I can point to dozens of studies that yes, when cash benefits are increased, you do get a fertility bump. Depends on the time window, you know, you can talk about the long-term effects, but at least in the short run you do. Um, but uh, you, you get more babies, but you get fewer babies out of wedlock. My question though, I mean, it's based on the last point Lyman made. I mean, my read of the research is, yeah, people have more babies right away, but that doesn't actually increase fertility over the long-term. So I guess then the question is, what is the real goal? And if these child allowances just um, move, move births up in the life cycle, I guess, what, what really are we trying to accomplish? Yeah. So I'll, the only thing I'll say, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't know the cross national uh, evidence that well at all, and certainly not as well as Lyman does. Um, so can't really speak to that. Um, I, I do think, you know, where the most research has been done in the United States on this distinction between um, substitution effects and income effects uh, it is in regard to work rather than um, in regard to marriage and fertility. Um, and there, it's, it's surprising. I mean, this is a, a difficult empirical question to actually answer well. Um, it, the, the ways that you get at it involve you know, a lot of modeling that's always gonna involve some controversial assumptions. Um, I, you know, other than the NIT experiment, I, I didn't track down many studies um, that, that were able to tease out separately substitution effects and income effects uh, for single mothers in particular. Um, what, we, what we do know, I think, um, and I'm drawing here from uh, work by Robert Moffat um, in a volume that's actually uh, an AI book that was edited by our colleague, Michael Strain. And Moffat, um, who you know, is probably as expert on this stuff as anybody, argues that changes in the benefit reduction rates of safety net programs, um, which is to say you're getting uh, some sort of benefit, AFDC, say in the past, which was the old cash welfare program, um, as you earn income, uh, your benefit gets cut uh, at, a, at a certain rate for additional income. And there have been experiments uh, with that benefit reduction rate uh, for decades. Um, and welfare reform itself uh, uh, also actually um, made that benefit reduction rate uh, smaller, making it more attractive for people to work um, uh, as well. And, and uh, and Moffat argues that there's not a lot of great evidence for a range of programs that these benefit reduction rates actually do uh, encourage or discourage work when they're changed. You know, you don't see you don't see big responses. And welfare reform kind of bears that out as well. We, we today, uh, the the people who are receiving TANF benefits combine welfare and work at only slightly higher rates than they did in 1996 or 1986 or whatever. Um, the big change is that now there are many, many fewer people who are on welfare at all uh, to combine work and welfare uh, at any point. So you can have a situation where, um, you know, where, the, where it becomes the returns to work for people who are getting cash welfare benefits improves and, uh, and, and where um, uh, few people take advantage of that, but a lot of people decide not to stay on the program. You can have that situation and, and substitution effect be important, but it's it's hard to tell a story that, that where the income effect isn't the thing that's sort of driving that, where it, it just became you know a lot less beneficial for folks to uh, to receive government benefits, and as a as a result, fewer of them did, and therefore you know the analogy with child allowances, it's going to become more attractive for people to receive government benefits, and that, that more of them will do that. 
the other thing I'll say is there there are you know there 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 will be some kind of substitution effect um, if we move from the child tax credit to child allowances because the child tax credit has uh, for, for people earning you know a relatively small amount between twenty five hundred dollars and about twenty five thousand um, dollars it's actually uh, advantageous to work more um, now under a child allowance that actually goes away like you don't you don't have to you know, as you increase your work between twenty five hundred dollars and twenty five thousand dollars it doesn't pay off uh, in the same way that it does for the child tax credit today um, is that going to be you know, as big as as the disincentives from AFTC or the old food stamps uh, program or, or today's food stamps program. Uh, certainly hard to say, but um, but but there is going to be that effect there. All right, I dropped off. I'm back. I see you didn't. Did we solve all repeat it. exactly what we said for you? I assumed it was solved. No, um, I know you all could answer this, but I want to sort of take this to the next level, the intersection of cultural conservative and the economics here. Scott, when you focus on people dropping out of work, you focused on um, the single mother dropping out of work, and that's a, a thorny issue. But um, Angela, there was a, in your article, you cited a study, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but um, the data you showed, uh, you said the authors estimated employment and earnings effect of a child allowance similar to the Democrats, and they concluded that more than one third of unmarried women would reduce their employment by at least one hour per week. What do we know about married women? In other words, if there's a married couple that has kids and this makes it easier for the mom or the dad to stay at home, I, as a, a social conservative, think that that's a good thing. And shouldn't that be thrown into the mix or do the economics tell us that that's not really going to be the primary effect? So Angela, you could start with that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the research is pretty clear that married mothers will reduce and I should say mothers. It's not really the fathers. It's the mothers will reduce their um, employment given policies like this. And we have that from the international context as well. And I think this gets to kind of the point Matt made earlier that there's a lot of different groups <laughs> um, that is kind of covered by a child allowance. And it depends on sort of where you come from and the perspective that you come from of which kind of takes more priority. So my, so I'm completely acknowledging that married mothers might stay home and might, if they choose to stay home, this might make it easier for them. And that probably is good for kids. Like I'm, I'm not disputing that at all. I think though the, the real question becomes, so Lyman said earlier that he, he doesn't really care about poverty or it's not his priority is poverty, but then you have to ask why is a policy then constructed this way that is potentially going to have negative effects on non-working, very poor families when you could design it in a way that it doesn't cover those families. So for example, expand the child tax credit, but do not expand it to non-working families. Like why does it have to be kind of a one size fits all approach that covers all children, recognizing to Matt's earlier point that we have all these different kind of groups and all these different goals behind these groups. Lyman? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Um, I think there's, and actually Scott mentioned something that's very related to how I'd respond, and that's that the child tax credit actually has a work incentive in it as well in that phase and period. And it actually covers, if you have three or four kids, it covers a huge range of income um, that it actually creates uh, a work incentive across well up into the middle income range. But this to me seems perverse, actually. 
um, that we say, if you don't have kids, we don't wanna give you too many work incentives. But if you do have kids, we really want to give you enough incentives that you can pay for daycare. And this is the incentive of both EITC and the child EITC, tax EITC, child tax credit, um, all, these, all these, they all work together in various ways, right? And my concern, and actually this is something I really appreciate about the Family Security Act, is it kind of corrects an injustice here that instead of childless people getting like peanuts in the earned income tax credit, it actually gives them like a real work incentive so that like childless dudes at home might actually have a reason to go get a job instead of playing video games. Um, because I look at a childless person and I think, you know, if you're not in school and you're not working, your next marginal use of time and you're not disabled, you know, you're healthy, your next marginal use of time probably is not highly socially valuable. Like point blank, it's probably not. I really want you working. I want you to face very high work incentives, i.e. very low implicit marginal tax rates. But if you have a kid at home, it's not clear to me that society is better off from you you doing market labor than working at home. And I really want to emphasize that term market labor because the comparison to a UBI that was made is, is pretty strange because a UBI is unconditional, but a child allowance is not unconditional. You got to have a kid, not just have a kid. You got to have custody of a kid. And so this is not an unconditional transfer. It's conditional on being a parent, not just being a biological parent, but actually having the child at home with you. And so I think that we, we really need to inspect whether we like this idea that we want to have even more kick in the pants for people who have a high alternative use of time, that is parents, um, to get a job, whereas people who don't have a high alternative value, uh, um, a high value alternative use of time, we don't care if they work or not. Whereas to me, it seems like the efficient division of labor is stack up a ton of work incentives on childless people. And then for people who have kids, let them make the decision about what's right for their family. And I should note, we have really good evidence on this from Poland's Sloty 500 pro program, where they did this massive cash allowance compared to their income level. Um, and fertility rose, as you would expect, um, and labor force participation fell a lot among lower earning spouses. It did not change very much. It changed a little bit, but not very much among single women, but among lower earning spouses, which is mostly women, but there's some men in there too. Um, labor force participation fell. And there's dozens of studies that find this in other contexts as well, that these, these, cash, these programs tend to lead to lower earning spouses altering their labor force participation. So to me, you know, I, I don't think um, that, the, that, that we're getting closer to the ideal society by subsidizing people's work just enough that they can pay for daycare, that the Quebec study, there's a study in Germany, um, and also there was a very recent study of welfare reform that shows that these, these, these programs to subsidize people's childcare to get them into work results in considerably worse outcomes for the children, particularly for young boys. Delinquency among young boys who were exposed, treated by welfare reform rose dramatically. So I really think we have to think about whether getting a parent into just enough work to pay for the cheapest daycare they can find is actually helping that child. Lyman, I, I get, it sort of sounds like you're saying that single parents are maybe the only group in society that get to choose whether they're um, expected to work in exchange for supporting themselves and their family. Am I missing something? You know, because in effect, what a child allowance is saying is taxpayers, somebody who's going to have to pay more in taxes to provide monthly benefits, the child allowance, 
that will then uh, allow single parents to be able to make a go of it without working because, you know, we don't want to force them to work and we don't want to uh, give them just enough to force them to work in, in combination with childcare. Why does everybody else, why is everybody else in effect expected to work to support themselves, but single parents aren't? So I don't think we're talking about a child allowance that only goes to single parents. Uh, married parents get this too. And in principle, if married parents think they can survive on the amount that they get from a child allowance, they could try. Um, but uh, so, so I don't think it's reasonable to say that I'm suggesting that single parents get some choice other people don't. What I'm saying is that child allowances should go to children. And if those children happen to be in a married household, it shouldn't be a different amount than if they were in a single household. Um, although as, as it happens in practice, um, Romney's plan is more generous for married people. Um, not because of an explicit marriage bonus in the child allowance, but because of a uh, because of the change in the head of household and all this stuff. And what I actually say is, if we're talking about a plan that was like going and imposing, a, you know, uh, a national sales tax to pay for this new program, and we we're like, actually, everyone's going to pay higher taxes to pay for this, that that would be a, a significant concern, I think. Um, but we're talking about a program that phases out a lot of policies that no longer function the way they were intended, that have a lot of um, tax policy vaporware in them, like the child independent care tax credit has a lot of fake phase in brackets, right? Brackets for people who can't actually claim it because they don't have all that. So we're, it, it's doing a lot of just tax policy code cleanup as well, that a lot of the pay fors here are dealing with, in some cases, gross and discriminatory uh, accidental side effects of past policy making that just never got cleaned up. Um, like the marriage penalty in the EITC, for example. So I'll just make a quick point uh, before throwing it back to Matt and then Scott. Um, the original, like if, if you look at old fashioned relief welfare aid programs, they were for, for widows and orphans. We live in a very different world today where a, an unmarried mom is much less likely to be unmarried because she's a widow. Um, than because she never got married or because she got divorced. And so part of the problem is that we have, uh, there used to be incentives for things like cohabitation that didn't matter because it wasn't done as much. And so we just live in a, the, the, the social norms of today make the wrangling with incentives that we're doing here much more difficult. Anyway, Matt. Well, yeah, and part of that is, I, I think it's, I think Brad described this about, you know, sort of the welfare uh, warriors and the welfare rights movement in the 60s and 70s, part of that is because we have been subsidizing that for a long time, right? Like we have been saying, as a society, we're going to provide increasing support that makes it more able for single parents to support themselves without having a married partner. You know, I, I'm not sure that that's something conservatives should cheer. That may be a fact of life. No, I, I agree. I agree. And the earned income tax credit is a perfect example of the subsidy for the subsidy for singleness that we provide, right? If two people with prime EITC bracket incomes, they both get the EITC, right? Say they both have one kid. If they get married, they lose the vast majority of their benefit. Um, so I agree with you. We've been subsidizing singleness. It's terrible. We should stop. Um, and this is why I think a program like a child allowance is great is because it doesn't provide as much of a subsidy for singleness. You're, proposed, you're talking about a child allowance that's the desired child allowance of some on the right, as opposed to the child allowance that we're going to get. It's not, you know, you can insist we have a seat at the table and all that. Right now, you got a 50-50 Senate and a slight Democrat majority with in the House with a 
Democrat president yeah. that's going to enact a child allowance that has none of these nuances, right? I, and for the next four years, we're going to have a Democrat president who's going to resist like mad all of mm -hmm. these nuances. I totally agree. And I think that's why something like the Family Security Act is really important because the Family Security Act does have a lot of this kind of conservative thinking behind it saying, okay, let's think about not discouraging marriage. So Biden's plan increases the marriage penalty, actually, because of st stuff it does on the EITC with single people and with the child independent care tax credit, it actually creates a bigger marriage penalty. <laughs> so I look at the Biden plan and it's like, it's ghastly, right? Um, and the reason is not because the child allowance is too big or too small, but because all these other moving parts do a lot of stuff to marriage. And I care very much about the marriage component of it. So that's why I, at the beginning, I said, it's very important to be concrete about what plan we're talking about. I'm really interested in the Family Security Act because it's a case where we actually have a proposal that checks a lot of those conservative boxes. Biden, plan, totally agree with you, does a lot of bad stuff. Okay, now we're at the point where there's a backlog of things that all the panelists wanna say. So I'll go Scott and then Angela, whatever you guys want to contribute. Just a couple of, of quick things. You know, again, this idea that, that the marriage incentives are better under child allowances, you know, really is hinging on an assumption that there's a pool of people who, you know, really are on the, on the verge of getting married, except for, you know, these, these tax disincentives uh, that prevent them from doing it, um, which there is a group um, that, that, that conforms to that. But there's also a group uh, on the other side of that uh, who, you know, under the current system, uh, you know, either, either existing today um, and married, but, uh, but would prefer not to be, or, you know, they're people that in 10 years are going to be adults. Um, today, they're not even adults. Uh, but in 10 years, under the current system, they would be married. Um, but under child allowances in 10 years, uh, they would have maybe six to nine thousand dollars more more money uh, being single, and so you know that's going to be an incentive. It's going to allow more of them to remain single. So it's you really have to consider both both of these camps, and none of us here on the on on at the meeting can sort of tell you the relative sizes of those camps or how responsive they are to these disincentives. But it's just a mistake to to oversimplify. I think where the incentives are. The other thing that I would say is I, I just think it's dangerous to um, to talk about uh, the social value uh, of different folks. Um, you know, there are a lot of folks that seem to, to, to basically be arguing, well, you know, there are just a lot of people out there, a lot of parents out there who are never going to earn a big wage. And therefore, what's really the point of encouraging them to go into the workforce and earn a low wage for a job that, you know, might be uh, not have a lot of advancement opportunities. Um, that's, that's not going to be a very pleasurable job by any stretch. Um, far better for them, you know, to be at home taking care of their kids. Um, you know, who could be against that? Like, do you, why do you hate kids? Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the, there's more value, social value involves more than just, you know, what the market pays you for the skills that you bring to it. Um, there is value from the perspective of a child and watching your parent go to work every day um, and seeing other people in your neighborhood uh, who may be single parents um, also going to work every day, um, seeing role models out there uh, in, in the world. Um, and on the other side, you know, the, the thing about the Quebec study, um, from what I remember, is that uh, the effect of paid daycare um, was bad for kids, for everybody except for uh, the lowest uh, educated participants. 
in the study for whom outside paid childcare actually improved their outcomes. Um, if, if someone else remembers it better than me and I'm getting that wrong, then, then, then please say it. But I, it's, I just it's think- a very, it's a small improvement. Yeah, very small, but it is, it's significant, <laughs> but small. Yeah, so, so I, I just think, you know, the sorts of argu- the arguments and it's not just Lyman that, that I've sort of heard them from is like, you know, these, these folks just aren't gonna uh, bring a lot of, of, of money home at any rate. Um, uh, it's much more valuable from a societal perspective um, that they be at home uh, taking care of kids. It's just, a, it's just an oversimplified argument, I think. Angela, what, what, what are we missing? Well, I'll just say, I mean, I've been involved in some of these discussions and I certainly have observed um, many of the discussions on Twitter um, of Lyman and others who in kind of a very academic way lay out the case of why this child allowance and why policies like this are going to have all of these tremendous benefits for everybody. Um, And I will just say... I mean, I I understand that, um, but I have an almost 20 year career where I spent most of that in government kind of seeing how these policies play out. And I've sat in rooms where people share the excitement of Lyman saying, look at, we just need to do this. All these great things are gonna happen. And I will tell you time after time after time, these policies get put into place or programs, these great things marginally happen, but then there's all these other unintended consequences that nobody thought of or everybody discounted at the time. And it just, this feels very familiar to me. And it's just um, can get frustrating when some of those concerns that are raised do get discounted and aren't taken a little bit more seriously. Thank, thank you, everybody, for joining us. This is why I love AI, um, all these views. Our, our website has all the work we've referred to. Really, if you just click on the bios of these four and have that be your reading list, um, not that you shouldn't check out Sam Hammond and, and Oren Cass, but you, would do, you could do a lot worse than just reading the, the four scholars on this page. Thank you, everybody, very much for joining us. Thanks for giving us part of your afternoon. Uh, have a good week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.